0: The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org.
1: Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, Out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace.
0: There's a scene in the second Lord of the Rings novel and movie, The Two Towers, where the world seems to be crashing down around the fighters, the good guys, in a place called Helm's Deep. Shout out to Matt and Candy and company. Aragorn and King Theoden have just made a last desperate charge into an army of monsters called orcs, uh, evil orcs that have completely surrounded the people. They're surrounded and they're stuck. It looks like it's game over. But at the last moment, an invasion comes from an unexpected place. Gandalf and the riders of Rohan arrive, the very ones that the besieged fighters had written off. As offering no hope. In a similar way, the world in the 8th century BC was crashing down around God's people Israel. I mean, they faced what seemed like an unstoppable force from perhaps the most brutal empire that had ever existed in the history of the world. They were surrounded and stuck. It looked like they were doomed. But God promised that in the midst of the world crashing down and empire after empire hurling themselves against his covenant people, that help would come from an unexpected place, a town everyone had forgotten about and a child whose coming everyone had forgotten. That invasion That ultimate invasion to end all invasions, the invasion of the incarnation 2,000 years ago is one of the most powerful and predicted events in history. God himself, the architect and director of history, prepared it, predicted it, and produced it. We're in an Advent series where for four weeks, we're, we're looking at four Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah, but each from a slightly different angle. Last week, we looked through scripture for the promised snake crusher, this morning for the promised shepherd, next week for the promised servant, and on Christmas Eve, Lord willing, for the promised king. Three weeks from tomorrow, not to stress you out, but three weeks from tomorrow, your New Year's resolutions begin, a time when many of you will surely kick off a daily Bible reading plan and perhaps say to yourselves, this is the year. (laughs) I know it feels like deja vu. I know I've said it before, but this is the year when I'm going to make it all the way through my Bible. I'm not going to get derailed. Well, where do we get derailed? Somewhere in the Old Testament. I've known a lot of Christians. I've never met one who made it all the way to Ephesians and then sputtered out, (laughs) which is one of the reasons why we're doing this series. I want you, even in just the span of four weeks, to become a little more acquainted with your Old Testament. And not just acquainted, but amazed. So that as you start the new year, as you start reading the Bible afresh next year, you'll have a running start and some basic categories to help you thematically as you navigate the unfolding drama. 75% of the Bible in your lap, 75% of it is Old Testament. And unless you come to grasp the big story, your appreciation of the New Testament will be impoverished. And today we're going to see again what Old Testament prophecy is all about, seeing how that one big story culminates in one great Savior. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Micah chapter 5. Micah 5, it's near the end of the Old Testament. It's okay if you need to use the table of contents. Uh, Micah is known to us as one of the minor prophets, not because he's under the age of 18, but just because his prophecy is shorter than the heavy hitters of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. But make no mistake, he may give us a short prophecy, but Micah is a real prophet, a divine mouthpiece speaking for God to the nation of Israel on the eve of Assyria's attack. So I mentioned earlier, this is the 8th century BC. That's the 700s BC. Micah is functioning like God's covenant prosecutor. Israel's on trial. They've been found guilty. And now it's time for judgment. One commentator writes, in his doom oracles, his doom oracles, Micah does not flinch from delivering the ever unpopular message that the wages of sin is death. He is no moralizing poet, but a dynamic reformer calling the nation back to its spiritual heritage. And just by the way, this is a little parenthesis. In 1952, archaeologists in Israel discovered a bunch of ancient Jewish manuscripts from before the time of Jesus, so really ancient manuscripts, They're known to us now as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And Micah's prophecy was one of the scrolls they uncovered. I just mentioned that to underscore that this morning we have not gotten out of bed, gotten dressed, and come all the way here to just talk about a fantasy story like the Lord of the Rings. This is not a fable, nor are we reading prophecy that was made up after the fact. Well, here's what I think. As we look at Micah 5, is the main idea. The main idea of Micah 5, 1 to 5, and therefore the main idea of this sermon. The Ancient of Days has been born to shepherd us, so rest secure in his peace. The Ancient of Days has been born to shepherd us, so rest secure. In his peace. And the two points of the sermon just kind of fall right out of that main idea sentence. First, Ancient of Days. We'll see that in verses one and two. And second, Shepherd of Peace, verses three to five. Ancient of Days, Shepherd of Peace. First, Ancient of Days. Look there at verse one. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. Micah's sounding a warning to Jerusalem and to Jerusalem's king, Hezekiah. And what he predicted is now etched in history, real history, Assyria, Uh, the major Mesopotamian empire at the time, before the more famous Babylonians took over, they did indeed, under their king Sennacherib, whom you can read about in the Bible and in extra biblical, that is outside of the Bible, ancient literature, he did conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and cart them off into exile in the year 722 BC. It happened just as Micah predicted, just as Micah warned here's what he says. They, middle of verse one, they, that is Assyria's army, will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. It's a picture of public humiliation. He's saying they're, they're gonna come in and metaphorically slap your King Hezekiah on the face. That's how helpless, how shamed Israel will be. If you think about it, think about this language. Of, of striking Israel's ruler on the cheek. Does that remind you of anything? Well, in that famous royal kingly Psalm, Psalm 2.9, what do we read there? The Lord there promised that Israel's king would vanquish their enemies with what? A rod of iron. And yet things have gotten so bad that Israel's own enemies are striking their king with a rod. This is not the way it's supposed to go there are actually several surviving copies of the Assyrian king Sennacherib's annals in, in which he boasts. I mean, you can go to a museum and see this. You can, you can Google this and, and find this, You can an image of this. He boasts in his annals that he managed to, quote, shut up Hezekiah in his royal city like a bird in a cage. The very thing that happened. Again, this is not how it's supposed to be playing out for God's holy, supposed to be holy, and chosen nation. But one unmistakable lesson is that when you rebel against the living God, you get judged. Not because he's mean, but because he's holy. And he will not tolerate idolatry. Idolatry is deadly serious but even in the midst of the horror of Israel's sin, there is a God. That's why we're here this morning. There is a God who speaks hope. Verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, but you. So the camera is panning away from Jerusalem. The the, the camera pans from condemned, besieged Jerusalem to an obscure little southern town called Bethlehem. The suddenness of this shift from verses one to two, it doesn't give us whiplash. It would have given the original hearers whiplash. It's sudden and it's meant to convey that Jerusalem is doomed and that the kingship is going to need a brand new start. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah. This can also be translated small among the thousands of Judah. Back in Joshua 15, Joshua 15 is one of those chapters, let's just be honest, where we are tempted to skip. Bible reading plans have sputtered out in Joshua 15 because it's one of those chapters where you just have a whole bunch of cities listed, dozens of cities. And if you look at uh, Joshua 15, you'll see that it's a list of Judah's towns, Judah's towns. There are 29 towns listed and nine kind of uh, uh, outskirt villages, and Bethlehem doesn't even make the cut. You will search in vain for Bethlehem in this long list of Judah's towns in Joshua 15. The village is so overlooked, it's not even worth counting. Of course, later it will feature in the story of Ruth, which is why it becomes the hometown of her grandson Jesse and great-grandson David. But we're not there yet. And why the mention here in verse 2 not just of Bethlehem, but of Judah. See that word Judah? Well, well, I want you to actually see the answer. So turn with me to uh, Genesis 49. First book of the Bible, Genesis 49. We're near the end of the story of Joseph and his father Jacob is on his deathbed. And what he's doing is he is pronouncing uh, uh, prophecies. He's, He's prophesying over his 12 sons who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And we're expecting, as readers, we're expecting, if we've kind of followed the drama of the narrative for the ancient promise that we looked at last week, right? The, the, the ancient promise of the seed of the woman, the snake crusher, and of the seed of Abraham, Genesis 12, who will mediate blessing to all the nations of the earth. We're expecting that royal promise to run through, to continue through the line of Joseph. Genesis 37 to 50 is all about Joseph. But instead, we hear exalted language, applied to a different son. Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. We don't have time to get into everything that's amazing about this. But of course, this is reminiscent of Jonah—not uh, uh, Joseph's own dreams from chapter 37 of his brothers bowing down to him. Again, that's what we're expecting, but it's no Judah. This is going to happen to you. And then now look at verse 10. The scepter, he's still speaking about Judah. The scepter, that is the king's rod. This is a royal promise. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until, and here's the future promise, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. That's why centuries later, King David descends, not from Joseph or any other of the 12 tribes, but from Judah. It's to Judah's line that the great promise to King David is given. You don't have to turn there. I've referenced it many times before. Any good preacher references 2 Samuel often. David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now back to Micah. Here we are at the time of Micah. So just so you know where we are in the biblical storyline, this is after David. It's after Judah and it's after David, after that promise from 2 Samuel 7 about the king who will always sit on the throne But once we get to the time of Micah, we're we're not on the eve of eternal enthronement. We're on the eve of attack, capture, destruction, and exile. Soon there will not be any king on the throne. For centuries, in fact, there will be no king on the throne. 2 Samuel 7, Genesis 49, they're going to look like lies. But through Micah, the Lord is telescoping into the future to reiterate his ancient promise and to preview in the rubble and wreckage of judgment. A word of hope, a day of hope. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you, so we're still in Micah 5 verse 2, out of you, Bethlehem, will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. I'm reminded of First Samuel. Remember, uh, it's chapter 8 of First Samuel when Israel demands a king so that they can be like the other nations, and God rightly takes offense to that. Because they're not wanting a king for the right reason. They're wanting a king so that they can experience the kind of earthly human protection and security that only God should be providing them. But they don't trust him to. They wanted a king for themselves, for themselves, because they weren't satisfied with God. And so, of course, he gave them what they wanted, but he warned them of the consequences. And so, just as he said, what did they get? Selfish ruler after selfish ruler, after selfish ruler. So don't miss that little phrase in Micah 5 too, For me. The Lord says, out of you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler for me. That is in contrast to Israel's self-serving leaders. This one will come, only this one, finally this one will come seeking the good of others and the glory of God. And he will be a ruler, Micah says, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. What is that language about? Well, most naturally, it, it would have been heard by the immediate audience. This would have been heard as a reference to the ancient promise given to Judah and then David about a coming king. But it's also a phrase that it doesn't mean less than that, but it can mean more than that. In fact, it's a phrase that can literally be translated from days of eternity. In fact, it's the same word that shows up in Psalm 90 verse 2. The whole world is yours from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. The picture won't be filled out though until we, we step into the New Testament. But what we have here in Micah is a clue 700 years before, a, a hint that the Messiah will not be like any other human king. He will have existed long before, eternally before he shows up in a Bethlehem stable. The architect and director of history is weaving all of history toward his entrance. And this means Christmas is not just about a birth. You've got to realize that. Christmas is not just about a birth. It's about a coming. This... Christmas is not just a sweet, sentimental, religious tradition to make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. Christmas is the celebration of an invasion, heaven breaking into earth, the architect and director stepping into time in the person of the newborn king. I love the scene. In the final uh, Chronicles of Narnia book, The Last Battle, and yes, I'm aware I've referenced Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia in the same sermon. I know I've reached some kind of preacher's quota. Don't worry, there won't be a Harry Potter reference, uh, at least not today. But in the Narnia scene, a few of the characters see, uh, if you remember this, The Last Battle, final book, they, they see an ordinary-looking stable, nothing to grab to grab. the the attention of an ordinary passerby. It's just a normal-looking stable. And one of them makes the odd comment, though, that this is a stable where it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. To which Queen Lucy responds, Yes, in our world, too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. And this reality, sometimes called the eternality or the preexistence of Jesus Christ, is not just some abstract concept for chin-stroking Bible scholars. This has enormous implications for your daily life. I'll just give you two. I'll just give you two. First of all, we dare not judge God's purposes, or our ministries by what appears immediately, visibly, tangibly impressive. See, while the world, once upon a time, was obsessed with headlines coming out of Assyria, headlines coming out of Jerusalem, God was moving in a little obscure village that didn't even register on the radar screen. As he warns in Zechariah 4.10, don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise the day of small things. And beloved, our lives and our ministry as a church, so much of it, so much of it will is and will continue to feel like a slog. So much of it is and will continue to feel ordinary, mundane, but that's how God tends to work. We are just slogging along, doing the next thing, putting one foot in front of the other. We're not sprinting in a blaze of glory. We're plotting ahead because that's what impresses our God. And we want to be found faithful in his eyes. I mean, when I think about the obscurity of Bethlehem or or the warning to not despise the day of small things, I'm also reminded of God's words to Israel way back in Deuteronomy chapter seven, where, where he says, the Lord, your God has chosen you, you, you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his, uh, to be his people, his treasured possession. I mean, that's pretty heady stuff, right? The Lord has chosen you and no one else. You're his treasured possession. But then he clarifies, <laughs> The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, God saying, I didn't choose you because you loved me. I chose you because I loved you. I am in the business of picking the unlikely and the unworthy. As the, uh, well, it also reminds me, by the way, of not, because I don't want you to walk away from this thinking, okay, well, Matt, we're, we're, in Micah 5 today, it's Old Testament stuff, uh, and so you've quoted Deuteronomy. Maybe that's how God operated with his chosen Old Covenant people, Israel, but aren't things different today? No, th- it's reminiscent. The way he spoke in Deuteronomy 7, 7 to the people of Israel is reminiscent of the way he speaks to the New Testament church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. so that, this is 1 Corinthians one twenty nine. so that no one may boast before him. As the great London preacher Charles Spurgeon once quipped, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterward And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. And speaking of his special love from before the beginning, here's implication number two. It's it's actually a profound observation that I heard several years ago and I've never gotten over. And here it is. The best proof, you want to know the best proof that God will never stop loving you? The best proof he'll never stop loving you lies in the fact that he never began. He always has. He's eternal, which means his love for you was never born. And therefore, it will never die. His love for you was beginningless, which means that it will be endless. Jeremiah 31.3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. There's that word again. Same word from Micah 5.2, from ancient times. I have loved you with an everlasting love from days of eternity. And the reason this should galvanize your hearts, this sort of mind-bending thought that God will never stop loving me because he never started, that's the reason this should encourage you and steal you with assurance is because it proves that his love for you is not some late appearance in the game. His love for you is not in response to a life well lived. Yes, you're called to please him. Yes, you're called to obey him, but his love for you is not a consequence of those things. It's the cause. His love is always, always prior Rest afresh this morning in his particular and prior love for you. As the Jesus Storybook Bible describes it, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Ancient of Days. Number two, point two, Shepherd of Peace. Shepherd of Peace. Verse three. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned. God is promising the the people will be exiled. The warning is going to come true. The kings will be deposed from the throne. Israel will be subjected to their enemies, but that's not gonna be the end of the story. They'll be abandoned, God says, until, this is verse three, until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. So there are two significant moments here. The birth of the promised son, who in context is the ancient ruler from verse two, and, and the return. It's a word for repentance. The return of the rest of his brothers to join the true people of God. Look back at Micah 4, just the the previous chapter. Verse 6, you'll hear some resonance, some echoes here. Micah 4, verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I've brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away, a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. So, what is the birth of this ancient ruler, this promised son? What is his birth going to commence? What is it going to bring about? A regathering of God's people, not on the basis of physical birth certificates, but on the basis of new birth certificates. The remnant will. Return. Now look at Micah 5, 4. He, the promised son, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, beginning of verse 5, and he will be our peace. You see what this is saying? The eternally ancient ruler who's coming in the future will not just be a mighty sovereign, but also a gentle shepherd. Micah says, he will stand. See that there? He will stand. It's a word that's elsewhere translated to endure forever. Once it, So he has endured forever. In eternity past, he will endure in eternity future. Once this king, not all the other kings you demanded, Israel, once this king takes his throne, he's going nowhere. He will stand, and Micah says, he will also shepherd. This means he will feed and nurture and care for and protect and provide for all the needs of his sheep. And 700 years later, a baby from Bethlehem would grow up and point to himself and say, the good shepherd, the one you've been waiting for is here. I am the good shepherd. And John ten nine, 9, we, we heard this earlier in our scripture reading. I am the gate. I am the shepherd and I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Unlike Israel's leaders... Past and present. Former leaders, present leaders who have taken advantage of the sheep, brutalized the sheep. If you want to read a devastating description of the way that Israel's leaders mishandled and didn't fail to care for their sheep, read Ezekiel 34. But in, in light of that, in contrast to the failure of Israel's shepherds in the Old Testament and the Pharisees and religious leaders in the New Testament, Jesus appears as the good shepherd. Hebrews calls him the great shepherd. Peter calls him the chief shepherd, and he alone provides abundant life. And the life our shepherd king provides is not just abundant for the here and now, it's also endless. John ten twenty eight. I give them eternal life, Not just life to the full, I also give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And it's not just abundant, it's not just eternal, it's also secure. Jesus goes on to say, as we heard earlier, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given these sheep to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you see what he's saying? (laughs) Jesus is looking at his disciples, at the crowds, and he's looking down through the tunnels of time and making eye contact with you this morning. And he's saying, Your security, your security does not reside in how strong your faith is, it resides in how strong your shepherd is. You're secure in the grasp of omnipotence. That's not just fancy preacher language. That is what he's saying. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I and the father are one. You are in the grasp of omnipotence and no one can snatch you out of the triune God's hand. You can't even snatch yourself. Don't flatter yourself. You can't do it. You can't even snatch yourself out of his ironclad grip. Jesus is saying the father and I are one and we hold our sheep and he looks at the demonic powers. He looks at the enemies of God's people and he says, we hold our sheep to get to them. You're going to have to come through us. This is why Micah says the Messiah's sheep will live securely. I've shared this illustration before, but it's like holding your little child's hand I mean, when you're walking with a young child through the store, you're just casually strolling along and you might be holding hands by just sticking out a little finger that they're holding on to. But when you step out into the parking lot, something changes. You pull away the finger and you grab their hand. You're still holding hands, but the grip has changed. Your grip is now decisive. And believer, your security ultimately lies in this, Jesus' grip on you is infinitely stronger than your grip on him. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, you will come, but you are simply not strong enough, not to offend you, you're simply not strong enough to fall away while your shepherd is resolved to hold you. But don't overlook that other phrase at the end of verse four. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Bethlehem's king will be the means by which God's majesty and mercy are made known to the whole world. Jesus came from ethnic Israel, but not merely for ethnic Israel. His ruling, conquering, reigning, shepherding, saving purposes will encompass the ends of the earth. This means they'll encompass Gentiles like you and me, and it means they'll encompass those who have not yet heard of his fame, heard of his purposes, heard of his love, heard of his son. In the Good Shepherd passage from John 10, there's one more promise that we heard earlier in the scripture reading. John 10, 16, I have other sheep, Jesus says. I have other sheep who are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also they too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. He's on an invincible mission, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Did you hear the note of certainty though in those verbs? Not, I might have other sheep or I really, really hope to have other sheep or I'm talking with the father about maybe having some more sheep. No, I have. I have, this very moment, other sheep out there. The Father's already given them to me. They're mine. The only problem is they don't know it yet because they're still lost. He's envisioning a, a full-fledged mission to the world, to the Gentiles, subsequent to his death and resurrection, which is the very thing Micah is anticipating here in f- chapter five, verse so, so Jesus is on this uninvincible mission to gather his lost sheep, to bring them in. But here's the thing. He's not going to do it apart from us. Not because he needs us, but because he's chosen to bring in lost sheep, not apart from his people, but through them. It's kind of a sheep summoning sheep plan. That's just how he does it. Found sheep summoning lost sheep. Found sheep going out and inviting, calling lost sheep to the shepherd. See, God doesn't just save us from something. He also saves us into something. He saves you from your sin, but he saves you into a people and into a mission to summon lost sheep to himself. So, beloved, be freshly encouraged In your evangelism this morning. I mean, you may not look at Micah 5 at this Christmas text and think evangelism immediately, missions, but it's right here, particularly around the holidays when you're going to have more opportunities than usual if you're looking for them to have gospel conversations with friends and family and neighbors. Be encouraged not only because Jesus has lost sheep he died for that still need to be brought in but because his voice is stronger than their defiance elsewhere in John 10 he promises they will listen to my voice there's another pretty certain verb they will listen to my voice it's not our grip that's decisive in walking with Christ And it's not our voice that's decisive in people coming to Christ. What could be more encouraging than this? Your job is not to create sheep. It's just to discover them. Which is another way of saying your job is just to be faithful and going out there and holding the microphone up to the mouth of Jesus who says they will hear my voice. In other words, my sheep have a built-in voice recognition system. (laughs) They will hear and recognize and follow me if you're just faithful to proclaim me. And if you think about it, from elders who serve as under shepherds beneath Jesus, the chief shepherd, to members bringing the gospel to their neighborhoods, to missionaries taking the gospel to the nations. The drama of Micah 5.4, the promise of this kind of activity, do you, do you realize it's playing out in miniature in the life of River City Baptist Church? As we point beyond ourselves to the shepherd king, as we hold the mic to his mouth, we are offering Richmond and Virginia and Tanzania and China the hope of the world, the only one who can bring them peace. Well, as we conclude, it's worth noting that the ancient Assyrians did, in fact, succeed as, as I mentioned earlier, they did plunder Israel, just as Micah warned, and yet their own empire, which had stood for 700 years, would be reduced to rubble within a century. Of course, Israel's removal, though, from the world's map didn't solve Israel's deepest problem, did it? Their deepest problem was the same problem that threatens and plagues every single person in this room. Their deepest problem is your deepest problem. Friends, we have all turned away from the God who made us, the God who loves us, the God who holds out mercy in his hands. We have all spurned him, given him our backs and run away in selfishness and sin. We've bowed down to other things. And as a result, We have been exiled from his presence. We're surrounded and we're stuck with our backs against the wall because of our sin. But in the fullness of time, God sent his only begotten son, as we thought about last week, his only begotten son, born of a woman to redeem us. It's the incarnation which we celebrate this time of year and all throughout the year, was not just a dawning of peace, it was also a declaration of war. When all hope was lost, he arrived to free us, to liberate us from captivity to Satan and to bring us safely home. The arrival of Gandalf at the top of the hill and Lord of the Rings, that's fiction. The arrival of Jesus Christ is history. That's the significance of Bethlehem, the beachhead. Bethlehem is the beachhead upon which God came to launch his assault on sin and death. In 33 years after the lowly manger scene in the final hours of his life, he was not just metaphorically slapped like Hezekiah. Matthew 27, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again and again. Micah prophesied about the manger, and the manger was ultimately about the cross. And if we fail to keep those two events connected, the events of that first Christmas with the events of the first Easter weekend, then we will perpetually have only a baby Christianity. But though heaven's invasion didn't end there... (laughs) That's the whole, whole point that Bethlehem was about Golgotha. Bethlehem was about the cross. Though it didn't end there, it did begin there in that little village. As we sang earlier of Bethlehem, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, our Ancient of Days and our Shepherd King. Oh, come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to come and adore you for sending your only begotten son, born of a woman, to live the life we have failed to live, to die on the cross in our place for our sin, absorbing, exhausting the judgment that was due to us so that through repentance and faith, we can be made right with you, And we can be made brand new from the inside out as we anticipate the day when you, the baby from Bethlehem, the ancient ruler, will one day split the skies and return as our king to make all things new. And it's in your beautiful name we pray, Jesus. Amen.